should be proud of yourself that you're here at the last session of the day, a big full day when your head's full, your heart's full. And uh, so congratulations. And you walked into this very hot room and decided to stay. So good for you. I just finished a session in here, which is why it was so hot. And it was fast-paced, rollicking, hard-pound literacy. And this is a much more Parker Palmer-esque, i.e. you teach who you are. So it's a little bit of internal work. It's a little bit about thinking about how you can think about your head and your heart and so that you can create really targeted instructions for people. So I'm going to go at a little slower pace because it's a little more reflective and I'm hopeful it's powerful. Now I'm going to start today a way that no one really should start and say that when this was introduced to me, I blew it off and I thought to myself, oh, that's trite. That's piffle, that's busy work, I'm not interested. But it was for a course I was taking in my doctoral program, so I had to do it. And what was surprising to me is when I actually did it, and I, and I mean this uh, seriously, it was life-changing to me. Like I, and I did it in, um, um, I just had to get somebody, you know, this class was in the summer, and I just happened to, to ask one of my colleagues who I had worked with for a year. So I had actually worked with her for an entire year, and I did this exercise, and literally when I was done, I was driving home and I wept because I was like, you worked with this person for a year and never really got to know who she was. And it wasn't until I did this exercise, it just changed me. And then I said to myself, if that could do that for this, like how else could I use this? And so I started using it, teaching my pre-service teachers to think about how to teach kids that are on the periphery. Because we all have those kids, right? And, you know, there's lots of theories out there, but I think a lot of it starts with your head and your heart. And we need to do some kind of heart work, and then we can do some really insightful work. And I'm... Uh, I would like to just say to you what's fascinating to me is students have come to me and said this was one of the most powerful things that I've taught them to do. I mean, that's their words, not mine. And I presented some of this in a conference um, out in Washington State uh, this summer, and I had people come to me too and said, like, wow, this is, this is a piece that was missing for me too. So it's my hope that even this isn't one of these kind of flashy presentations, because I can do that. <laughs> this is much more kind of slow and thoughtful intentionally, because you, like me, could miss it otherwise. Like, you could just say, oh, yeah, yeah, it's just this thing. And I'm actually going to have you do it. So it might be a little uncomfortable that you're going to work with someone, and we're going to kind of do this. And like, But here's the good news. You can share what you want to share or not share, so it doesn't necessarily have to be, like, you don't have to say, like, oh, no, I'm going to expose when my pet died or anything like that. Um, <clears throat> instead, um, but I just want you to know that I found that unless we try it, and think through it, it's not nearly as durable or lasting. So just giving you a heads up. Okay, um, I'm tying this into the theme here and that I think that when we do creative endeavors, it can be life-giving to us. Like there's a time for renewal when you step up and step away and you take a break. But I spent a couple decades in a pretty intense school situation where I was teaching first grade and a colleague of mine who brilliantly said and would consistently charge me and our other colleagues to say, we need to renew as we go. Because if we don't renew as we go, this gets hard and heavy. 
Like, I find out things that are too hard for my heart. And I see things that are too hard for my heart. Like, how do I kind of renew as I go? So um, I think this process can be one of those things that can help you see the joy set before you, that you can just roll up your sleeves and like, I'm going to get after this because there's so much beauty there that I want to be a part of. So I am hopeful that this technique could be something that could be really powerful for you. I think it could be. All right, I'm going to start with, as researchers often do, is with definitions. This, I almost face-planted several times during my last, there's, this whole thing is bad for me because I tend to be a mover, so we'll see. We made an agreement last time that you will not film me and put me on social media <laughs> if I faceplant. That's the deal. Okay, uh, one thing about giving a definition for empathy is it's very nebulous. It's very hard for researchers to, to, to get their um, hands and hearts around it. So I'm going to give you a couple. Um, but they're not definitive, right? It's, it's, it's a complex thing to get your mind around. So one simple definition is the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. Another is the ability to share someone's eternal world of thoughts and feelings. I like that concept because I don't know about you, but my frameworks are so solid. I think everybody needs to be on time. I think everybody needs to be, you know, a powerhouse and get after it. I think, you know, you got to do the hardest thing first. I have these frameworks, and I just, I mean, especially when I was teaching, I tended to teach what, on the way it functioned best for me and how I learned. Those frameworks were so strong. I tend to value people. I tend to talk to people. I tend to engage with people with these really strong frameworks. And I'm thankful. Welcome. I'm so glad you're here. You've doubled our whole thing <laughs> Did you just discover us? This is wonderful. <laughs> Yay! Uh, welcome to the sauna. We love it here. It's like a wool. <laughs> um, okay, so we're just talking about empathy. So the thing I, that I like that's really challenging for me is to, um, in my all of my relationships, and particularly with teaching, to recognize that learners learn differently. They have different values and backgrounds and right and they have a different heart and that heart is valuable how that heart beats and functions and values so empathy is a powerful thing so that's one definition i also like this definition because it 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 strands out two different pieces so he says empathy can be understood as both emotional i.e. i'm connecting with your feelings and cognitive i.e. I logically am making certain choices or I logically understand that you come from this background or that you have this. And I think as a teacher, my logic piece is often in data, right? What's the student's scores? What's the student's attendance? What's the student's, right? I look at data. That's a lot of cognitive and I think that's a critical and helpful piece. But I also think it's emotional. What is this child's experience like? What is this person's experience like? Um, and here's my nerdy thing, because like I'm a brain nerd. We used to think for years and years and years, and I like to think so too, because I'm from a very staunch Dutch background, that brains are logical when well, they're not logical. Brains are emotional with the capacity to be logical. We used to think, oh, they're logical with the capacity to be emotional. 
I mean, people are hardwired. Emotions are very powerful. They're a very par powerful framework, motivation, right? They are very influential. Now, they're harder as a teacher to kind of wrap your head around, but this is where the empathy piece comes from. If you start really understand, like, how does this person actually feel? And, and then what do they believe is true? If this, they feel this way and they believe this to be true. That's really helpful for you to connect with them and to plan for them. All right, empathy is a professional disposition that's effect, that effective teachers use in complex educational settings. But, you know, basically, like, you have kids that are outliers in every, every situation. It could be a neurodiverse outlier. It could be a family-style outlier. It could be, you know, they could have gone through some type of severe trauma, which is every kid now, right, post-COVID. Um, the ability to develop empathy is often associated as a disposition that's supportive to developing culturally responsive teaching pedagogy, i.e., there are people who want to be much better at negotiating people from diverse cultural backgrounds. And this is also a way to connect with that. Um, this is a quote from 1964, an oldie and a goodie. But when I read it, I was like, oh, there's some really nuggets there. Okay, uh, developing empathy helps teachers filter their thinking, remember those frameworks, and instructional thought lens of students' social and cultural perspectives i.e. it can help you enter their world and what a gift for a kid to allow to to have a teacher that wants to enter their world value who they are where they come from what they bring what their passions are what their hobbies are see the world through their eyes build on their background knowledge i mean here's this the kicker as a literacy instructor Building on their background knowledge is so critical. This is how we help kids bridge from the new to the known, right? Evaluate pedagogy and select instructional strategies. By the way, welcome. I'm so glad you came. Uh, you have gifts. Oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Evaluate pedagogy and select instructional strategies that match students' abilities and their learning preferences. So that is a lot of what we're going to do today. All right, unpack. So people's, people's genetic factors influence their social cognition, i.e., one thing that you may or may not know is that people have parts of their brain that are specifically, no, just they're created with specific mathematical abilities, specific spatial abilities, specific linguistic abilities, but they also have specific social cognition i.e. when to talk, when to listen. So you'll know, and you're, maybe it's you or you'll know some people, there are people that are very comfortable in front of people. They just have that genetically, like this is how I'm wired. Or they know they, they are magnets for people, right? They just build friendships, they keep friendships. There are people on the other end of the spectrum that they have a much more difficult time knowing what to say, how to say it, how quickly to say it, right? It's that social cognition, this building of relationships. Now we can all become more skilled but one thing that we can that can increase whether you are genetically gifted in that or, or less so, or you've practiced that skill, is building empathy. So activities such as this, empathy mapping, which I'm going to show you, supports individuals' ability to develop empathy with a variety of students. So all that to say is there are some teachers, and you may know, you may be one, or you may know someone, they connect well with all kinds of students relatively easily. They just have that skill. Maybe it's how they raise, maybe it's, you know, they're a genetic ability or a mixture of that. So 
wherever you fall on this spectrum of connecting with kids and planning for kids, uh, recognizing and building on their background knowledge, I mean, wherever you fall on that, this particular skill can be very helpful. So, so here I am, I'm in my doctoral program, and I happened to go to Johns Hopkins University, which um, had the gift of having this particular professor. This professor is Robert Buffons. He is known in internationally, but very nationally. I think he just got a big award last year at the White House, or the year before, I can't remember. But he is known for helping schools that are struggling, and students that are struggling, particularly in high school, to help their schools be more effective. He's known in kind of this transitional area. And so this is a lot of his work. So I had him for a class. And so this is the class I was in. And he said um, in this class, he goes, I want you to do this activity. Now this activity, empathy mapping, actually is from the business, business technique of creativity. So out in California, there are these schools of creativity, and the thought is you're not going to be able to create what people really want and really need unless you know the people and you know what they really want and really need. And you know how they feel, and you know what drives them, and you know their motivation. So this actually came, originally this came from this this business of creativity. And, and typically this is used to train people in marketing and people in business and people that, you know, create products, per se. So originally it was used to determine what products users really want. But he said, let's adapt this for education. So instead, let's use it to identify what the learner thinks and feels about themselves, about the learning tasks, and about their learning environment. Because if we can do that kind of work, we are going to be more equipped to help create an environment that's safe and inclusive and supportive, to select materials that are a better match for their learning preferences and needs. So he was the one who got me onto this, right? So it can help you make better instructional decisions, and I think this is also the beautiful piece. It can help you build deeper, richer, more powerful and influential relationships, particularly, and this is what Robert Belfonce's big push is, because the research bears out, one of the things that helps students who are in difficult situations the most is trust. It's this, it's this balm. And so if we can help build trust with students, it's this balm for them to want to work and want to try and want to risk and want to be known and to know. And, you know, this is, I'll just be honest with you, this was kind of anti-me when I was a teacher. Like, I'm a powerhouse. It's like, make a plan, work plan, you know. And not that I didn't love kids. I just didn't slow down and say, like, I want to really get to know you and who you are and how you're wired. So I want to challenge you. Maybe you can't do that for every child, but maybe you can for one or two. So as I said, this came out of the Institute of Design at Stanford, and here's a quote from them. As a human-centered designer, you need to understand the people who you are designing for. The problems that you are solving are rarely your own. That gets back to your framework, right? That's how you would solve this problem, but that's maybe not your problem, it's their problem. And so something else is going on. 
they are those of particular users. In order to design for your users, you need to build empathy for who they are and what is important to them. Now, what I'm not saying is the tail wags the dog. That, you know, because the kid is motivated by this or like this or interested, we're throwing everything out and we're just doing that. Instead, what I'm saying is, let's unpack who this person is. What are their frameworks? How are they motivated? And then we can create a context that can be supportive to that. In particular, we can build relationships that can be helpful. All right. <clears throat> These are the steps. Observing, so I'm just going to go generally, and then I'm going to be specific, right? Because sometimes, um, anyway, I'm just going to go generally, and then I'll be specific. So you don't have to write them all down, because I'm going to go over them slowly. Observing people in your environment gives you cues about what they think and feel. So here's the challenge to you. And some of you are better than me, because I'm a goer, right? I'm already two miles ahead all the time. So think about yourself and who you are. How often do you notice nuances of the people that you work with? When they're up, when they're down, what's happening, right? Are you the kind of person that notices when they're off? Are you the kind of person that notices when they're joyful or delighted? How often do you notice all the nuances of the students that you work with, right? When students walk in the morning, are you picking up the sense of how their morning already has gone? All right, these clues can help you analyze what they need. These insights will prompt you to in innovative solutions. And the best solutions come out of the best insights into human behavior. All right, so here's what I want to challenge you. Think of the people in your context. Do you have an ELL learner, a neurodiverse learner? I love neurodiverse. Every single kid is neurodiverse. <laughs> Dang it, everybody! Everybody's a little right, unique, right? Uh, a student who has encountered trauma. Do you have a new student? A student re-entering from a long absence? A student with health challenges? A student with physical challenges? Um, and that could even be a small physical, like glasses or a hearing aid. That they're not necessarily small, but maybe they're not as noticeable to other people, but they can be significant to this person. Uh, a student with stress or anxiety challenges, student who struggles socially, a student with attention, regulation, motivation challenges, and then just kind of fill in the blank. So in a moment, I'm going to have you share with someone next to you, just in your learning context alone. Do you have any of these people? And maybe they're not that. Maybe there's something else. Maybe you have somebody who's very shy. Maybe you have somebody who feels like they just don't have what it takes or, or whatever. All right, so share with somebody next to you. Let's specifically pull out some students that you may have that you say, like, in a perfect world, I could unpack who they are a little better so I could plan better for them.
I'm going to just unpack what it is, and then we're actually going to do it. So I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to unpack what it is, and then we're going to do it. And when you do it, it's a little harder than you think, and a, and a little more life-giving than you think. So hopefully that. Okay. So, um, first, you either develop interview protocols, i.e. you develop a questionnaire. Um, so they'll get to know you, so they can build rapport, so they may feel evoked to tell stories, maybe they'll share their emotions or feel appreciated, right? So you may have an interview protocol. For example, when I send my students out to teach reading tutor, I send them with a questionnaire that really just kind of breaks the ice to say, who are you? How do you feel about reading? How do you feel about you know, school, how do you feel about, you know, all those kind of things, just kind of like a questionnaire. And it's kind of non-threatening. But, and then I tell my students, when you're giving this interview protocol, um, which is a fancy research term for, for, a, for an interview, right, um, you are collecting data, like information, but you're also watching how quickly do they answer, how confident do they answer, do they answer in depth or a little bit? Do they look you in the eyes? Do they mumble? Like what? Like well, that tells you things, right? So you develop this interview protocol, and/or if you happen to be in a classroom anyway, you may not need an interview protocol because you see them all. So maybe you're going to collect data in other ways. This was my prime data collection. Um, like I use that term now that I do more research, but as a as a first grade teacher, I knew that was where I could get a pulse speed and how that little person was, right? You know them, you love them, and you're like, are they upbeat? And man, the stuff I find out about their family, like, you know, we just got in the car accident because my dad wasn't paying attention. I was like, woo, that's a lot of information. Okay. <laughs> oh, yay. Sometimes, you probably all had this, you know, when you're across the parent-teacher conferences, you're like, wow, I know stuff about you. <laughs> and they're thinking the same thing. Oh, Right, that's a good, well, a good thing. There's lots of trust. Okay, now, uh, so you're, how are they when they arrive? There's a lot of in place to gather data. Another, during read-alouds, right? There's something about story that kids connect to. So when you're reading aloud, what are their answers to questions? So sometimes when you read stories about characters that go through difficult things, like stuff will come out. So that's interesting. Okay, small group instruction or writing conferences during collaborative group work, during circle or rug time, if you have a class meeting time. I always found, it was really always interesting to me, is, you know, when they were at their desk, all kinds of stuff was going on, great stuff, but there was something about coming together. It was like, sound like that Dutch word, like warm and cozy, and, you know, stuff, that stuff would come out. I'd just pick up a lot of interesting things. It was just beautiful. And I was like, I wish I could bottle up those times and then, you know, eliminate some of the other times. All right. <laughs> As students, you know what I'm talking about. Okay. As students leave for the day, too, right? And just like, how are they transitioning? So those would be all times you kind of collect data. Here's what I'm going to do. Just talk with someone next to you in your own context. Because I'm guessing you don't necessarily have to do an interview protocol to get them. But instead, you would say, ah, in my own classroom, where do I, where can I get the best data? So you mentioned some specific people. Where can I get the best data on them? And by data, I just mean how they feel, how they think, what's school going, where they feel about themselves as a learner, how's life, like what's interesting, what kind of framework should they have, right? Because kids show you sometimes more than tell you. Where do you gather that data? Or maybe you can just say, oh, I do that 
you know, when they arrive. Maybe that's maybe your baby. So just talk to someone next to you. Say, like, where could you get the best data about your people? challenge or something, I know you're like, where is everybody? But like, hey, I've been through many of those. In fact, once I had show and tell pet day and the cat got loose. I am not kidding you. So I had 25 people chasing the cat around my room. By the time I came out, the firefighters out there trying not to laugh. I'm like, don't put this in your report. Do not put this in your report. He's like, I think I was fireman fodder for the whole night. All right, so experience stories, right? You're like, I cannot make this up. They did not prepare me for this in college. Oh. All right. So think to yourself, what is a kid, try to put in your shoes. So like if you have a kid with autism, or if you have a kid that's an ELL learner, or if you have a kid, no one in school looks like them. No one in school just had their parent, their, their grandparent, arrested and, and taken away by immigration. I mean, right, like, so like, think about what they, how they might be experiencing that moment. That may be a bit of a stretch for you. And I'll just be honest with you. My first couple of years of teaching, this was never on my radar. <clears throat> All right, watching what people do and how they interact with their environment will give you clues on what they think and feel. And think, yes, that's important, because how they feel you know, do they feel efficacious? Do they feel like I have what it takes? And or feel, because feelings drive so much. It will also help you learn what they need. These insights will help you uncover insights that can lead to innovative and effective lesson designs, but I would also say how to have a collaborative and supportive community or context for them. All right, so some things to challenge yourself. This would be if you're just doing an interview, but I mean, maybe just in everyday living. And I have to keep asking myself, like I said, my frameworks are so strong. My parents did such a fine job of getting those frameworks in my head. All right, don't judge. Observe and engage without the influence of judgment. Question everything. And this is for all of us. Because sometimes if you've been teaching for a while, you're like, yeah, I get that. Or that's just like that kid. And maybe they're not just like that kid. 
Be truly curious. Strive to assume a posture of wonder and curiosity. Find patterns. Look for interesting threads and themes that arise. And then this, and this is my gouge, because like I said, my brother always said to me, like, you're like a racehorse, man. I just need to get in the gate. That's my whole goal, is get in the gate. <laughs> but instead, like, listen. Truly listen. Lose my agenda, difficult for me. Absorb what your student says to you and absorb how they say it. I want to say that again. Listen truly. Lose your agenda. Absorb what your student says to you and how they say it. All right, so good design is grounded in deep understanding of the person for who you are designing. That's why we do all the work. So basically what you're going to do, and I'm going to just tell you all the pieces, and then we're going to pack it, unpack it down. And by the way, just know this is going to be you in a minute. You're going to be doing it. You're going to collect this data, and after you collect this data, so in your own life, it would be like in the classroom, but today we're going to do an interview. You're actually going to interview somebody next to you in a minute. And you're going to listen to what they say, and you're going to pull out. By the way, you have to take notes, right? Because you're going to pull out some key things that they say. But you're also going to watch what they do. Do they answer you complexly? Do they give you simple words? Do they avoid some subjects? Do they, does their voice go up or down? Do they look at you? Do they look down? Do they pause? Do they turn a little bit of red? Like, what do they do? That's indicators of what they feel. And I'm like, me? I'm probably crying through half of it. Somebody will ask me in the morning, what? They're like, what is happening? <laughs> uh, I think it's healthy. Other people think it's scary. You know. <laughs> However you want to roll it out. All right. And then, you know, then you want to think, when, then you want to strand out. Like, if this is what they say, and this is what they do, then you think to yourself, then what do they think? And then it's the money piece where it really gets interesting. Then if, if this is what they say and do and think, then how, are, how do you think they feel? So let me, so you put them in these four categories typically. And you know, at first, when I first heard this, I was like, why do I have to go through this extra step and blah, blah, blah. But somehow doing this sorting can help you make connections for themes. All right, and then after you do that sorting and you put them in those four categories, then you do this beautiful work. You pull this out and you say, what are themes? If I'm looking at those quadrants, there's a pattern, there's threads here. For example, what student needs did you suddenly become aware of? Or, or, or what did you, you're gonna be interviewing a person and you're gonna be like, wow, what is valuable to them? What is interesting to them? What is achy to them? What is moving to them? What is inspiring to them? You're gonna pull that out. What new insights did you develop? How will these insights influence you? So just to go back to my own story, remember I did this technique, so I interviewed this colleague of mine colleague of mine, because you know, like I'm a go machine, I'm busy working all the time, and she had her office across, right across from mine. So I'm interviewing her, I'm just asking these questions, and she started sharing, and I was, you know, you know, all of a sudden I was like, oh. she basically said, I felt alone and isolated, and you guys are so busy, I just didn't feel like bothering you. I was like, oh, here she was new, and I mean, I was like, good, you're good, I'm good, we're all good, let's go, you know, and I thought, I mean, I was really gouged, because I started pulling out these themes, and I'm like, she loves working here, she, you know, she respects all of us, and it was a great experience, and she felt like we were too busy, and I was like, me, I never even had her on my radar, 
I was like, oh, I just, that's why I kind of cried when I went home. I was like, I got to do better. All right, so here's some examples. Some, some of my students did these when they went and they interviewed their students and they, you know, pulled them out and they pulled out some key things of what kids said, what they did, what they thought, and what they felt. Here's another sample. Um, and now, <laughs> I'm getting after it, right? All right, so here's a little application. What I did is I actually made a simpler one for you to kind of process through. And you and a partner are going to work to do this activity. So I just made this up, by the way. I said, like, okay, these are things a student says. And then I pulled out. These are some things a student did. These are some things people done. Your job together is to pull out some themes. So here's what this kid said. By the way, this is a made-up kid. I like reading, but only short books. Right? And then, wow, you're saying, like, what's driving that? There's something driving that. Okay, I like to be read to. Hmm. Okay. I do not like scary books. I have two smart big sisters. I love my dog, but not other dogs. Okay, that's interesting, right? To me, I like my dog, but not other dogs. So there's something not safe or something, right? Something's going on. Okay. My friends and I like to draw stories during our free time. You are nice, and I like the book you bought. What are we going to do next time? All right, this kid is, like, important. What's happening next? I need to know. It's interesting to me. Okay, that's what they said. This is what the kid did. Long pauses before answering. Limited eye contact. Observed very closely when the teacher was writing. Right, that made her anxious when the teacher wrote something. She listened carefully. She fidgets when she was unsure of how to answer something. She smiled when she felt like she got it right. She gave an answer every time. She listened carefully during the story, and she laughed at the funny parts of the story. That's what she said. This is what she did. Now, from that, I pulled out this. What is she thinking? She's thinking, I like the teacher. She's thinking, I don't want to make a mistake. Did you get that sense? Like, what? Am I doing well? I'm concerned. It's important to me that I'm doing well or right. I hope she doesn't know that I think reading is hard. I value being liked. Now, I'm inferring here, and maybe you as a team can infer some other things about what she thinks from what she said and did. Now, here's some inferring of the feelings. I'm very anxious about making mistakes. She doesn't want to disappoint. She's insecure or worried that she doesn't measure up to her two very smart, I mean, they weren't big sisters, they were smart big sisters. And she felt vulnerable, and she had this need to feel safe. Now, I inferred that from some of the things that she said. You guys can infer some other things. So here's your job together. You can either infer some more things or what you think she's thinking and feeling from those two things, and or what's the big theme that you're going to take away and that's going to influence what kind of context you're going to teach her in. For example, she is not self-efficacious at this point. If she's feeling vulnerable and fragile and teacher input is so valuable, how could that influence how you're going to teach her and your context? So do you understand your two jobs? You're going to add a few more things to infer what she thinks and feels. And then you're going to plan, strand out these themes and how could that influence, if this was your little person, or big person, I mean, she could be fifth grade or whatever, how would that influence you? Okay, get after it, you and your partner.
and we had to find pennies in the sawdust. <laughs> and I'd be like, this is that kind of work. It's got a little gritty, and I work, 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 and that penny is like, ooh, wonderful. Okay, now, we're going to do a little bit of work now with partners, and you're going to tag team, and so you don't have to ask all these questions, but one of you is going to ask the other person, three or four of them, and you're going to take notes. Okay, here's what you're looking for. Of course you're collecting what do they say, but pay attention to what they do. How do they answer you? And, you know, it doesn't have to be creepy because your partner knows you're just practicing your research or skills. So, you know, even if you're totally wrong, you know, because later on when you go, these are the themes I pulled out. You're like, what? What are you talking about? You say, well, I'm a new researcher. So, you know, there you go. Okay, so one of you is going to ask any of these questions, four or five of them, collect some things they say and some things they do because here's what you're going to do. You're going to make, like, somewhere on a grid somewhere, you're going to just put down some key things and not everything they say. Basically, what you want to do is just some, some things that strike you. And not only just your head, but your heart. Like, wow, they really value their children. Or, wow, teaching is like a, a lifelong joy for them. Or whatever it is. You're like, wow, there's just something there. What do they say? And then, what do they do? And you all have permission. You can look at people's eyes. You can look at their face. This is your job. And like, your hands and pausing and right. And so you're collecting. What do they do? And then after you've both done that, so somebody asks questions and you you take notes on what they say and do, and then you flip and say and do. Then you're both going to take a break because then you're going to fill in if this is true and this is true about your partner. What do you think they think? That's inferring, putting those clues together. And what do you think they feel? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So interview, take some notes, flip.
flip, interview, take some notes, and then do the inferring pieces on the bottom. And then if you still have time, which I hope you do, pull out like a stretch. Say like, if you were my colleague, what are some things, how would that influence how I would interact with you? I'd be like, oh, I'm going to remember your birthday because that's like important to you. Or whatever it is, you pull out. Okay, so let's get back to these questions. Okay, go after it.
Um, so in my students, these were students in 2019. They were juniors in college. And I had a reading instruction course. And there were 10 female preserve teachers. And the highlight was how do we, as, as, as people from a certain demographic that have certain similar frameworks, how can we help kids from diverse cultural frameworks do uh, higher levels of reading instruction? Like, what, what, what could that look like? <clears throat> and so uh, we started with this empathy map. And I'll, I'll be totally honest with you. In the research, there's always this question, like, this is so hard, because as soon as you start talking about cultural differences, there's this elephant in the room, it's called shame. And, you know, and I'm like, I'm not going to be a part of that, I'm not going to promote that, I'm not going to live that, because I taught in a very culturally diverse setting, and I'm like, in my experience, the power of me growing and my ability to connect well with cultures was people inviting me in and loving me well. And they, were, they weren't saying, well, you're this, and we're going to divide, and I'm like, all that kind of stuff. So there's some stuff in the research, I'm like, that seems so full of shame and division. And so instead, I said, we're going to start with this empathy mapping. And my students said to me, it was such a powerful way for them to start, because they themselves didn't feel like, well, I'm different or I'm bad. Instead, it's like, oh, I show up in certain ways, no matter what context I'm in. I show up in these ways. And I think about things because I show up in these ways. Because I'm a daughter, I'm married, I'm single, I'm, you know, whatever it is, right? You show up in those ways. And so for them, they're like, um, doing this work helped me recognize I show up in some ways. And they're not necessarily bad ways, but they influence how I expect and what I expect from that kid. And so they found that engaging in this empathy map helped them to value their students' background knowledge and prompted them to infuse their interests and skills into lessons. They believe that engaging in this map activity prompted them to consider and value their students' perspectives, their students' frameworks. And that particular came out when they started to do high-level thinking, that they didn't think, oh, they're wrong because they're not giving the answer I assumed they were giving me. But it's like, let's stop and listen and unpack. And sometimes those answers were deep and beautiful if you consider what, what they were coming with. Okay, pre-service teachers built better and deeper relationships with their students because they recognized what their student thought, felt, and believed as a learner. And they believed that they planned more effective learning experiences because they recognized that their student thought, felt, and believed about themselves as a learner. So that's some of the data that I, I collected from them. Here's some quotes. I learned from this class to really listen to my students, to observe what they're telling me, even when they are not using words. Isn't that powerful? And you know, I'm like, I've been in this game forever and a day, but I'm like, hey, that isn't, maybe hasn't been my strong suit. I was like, that's so powerful to me. Okay, it is critical to be tuned into the feelings and behaviors of your students in order to teach them better. Here's another quote. Using the empathy map made me more aware and empathetic to a student with a background different from mine. Being aware of where a student comes from is essential to building a relationship with him and ultimately teaching him effectively. Learning about the unique background of my student has given me an appreciation and love for the diversity that God created. Um, she actually used her... I put it in a pseudonym, though, so it's not the real student's name. But um, I have been able to see Lily's strength shine through our time together in numerous ways. I think getting to know Lily deeply through things like the empathy map helped. 
This allowed me to view her in terms of her strengths. How beautiful were those. So here's what I want you to do just before we leave, because we're getting close to the end here, is to say, is there anything in this activity? I mean, maybe you don't have to do the whole full thing. Maybe all you walk away today is I have frameworks, and I want to listen and observe more closely to recognize frameworks of the kids I work with. I mean, maybe that's all you walk away with. Or maybe you walked away with something different. So think about, was there anything that we covered today that helps you think about how you're going to teach, think, plan, engage in ways that could maybe help you grow professionally and maybe be more effective. So just think about that for a minute. And then in a moment, I'll let you share. And you can even say, nothing, man. I wasted my last thing. No. <laughs> So when you feel like, oh yeah, 